Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am thrilled to have Bill Crystal here with me. Uh, many of you know Bill's writing. Uh, he's the founder of the Weekly Standard and uh, also now of The Bulwark. And he's a public intellectual and a thoughtful person and a person who I'm interested in uh, because he's a th both a thinker and a doer. He's uh, an institution builder who's engaged with the political life, but he's also a person who champions liberal arts. Uh, you can listen to his podcast, uh, in which he often has on uh, philosophers and professors of Shakespeare and the like. And so as a thinker who doesn't just want to be in the Ivy Tower, I find uh, tremendous kinship and inspiration from his example. And I'll just on a personal note, it's been over a decade, I think, since I last was in a room with Bill Crystal. But he uh, was a teacher for the Tikva Fellowship briefly, where I was a, a student as an undergraduate. So it's it's nice to uh, to see you again, Bill. Welcome. Good to see you, Zohar, and thank you for having me on. And I look forward to this discussion. Fantastic. So there is a debate one of my favorite debates in modern philosophy between Leo Strauss and Alexander Kajev about whether philosophy can make the world better or not. Uh, so just to rehash this debate a little bit, Kajev, who was a Marxist, uh, albeit a, um, a strange kind, thought that philosophy could make the world better and that the sort of end of history would be achieved when the rulers were wise when the rulers learned philosophy and could apply the lessons of philosophy. And he himself applied this idea and stopped becoming a philosophy professor and actually became a chief designer of the European Union. And his, his work and his example inspired a completely different thinker, Francis Fukuyama, who kind of takes this idea in a more capitalistic direction. And Strauss is more pessimistic. Strauss thinks that the best philosophy can hope for at least in his uh, debate with Kashev, is a little garden, a little academy where philosophers can be fenced off from the cares of the world. He calls these vulgar pleasures. Uh, politics is as much a vulgar, vulgar pleasure as, uh, as sex or food. Um, and philosophers should hope to speak to other philosophies across time and place, but they should never hope to make the ruling class better. Um, that's a failed endeavor. And so um, the the point of their debate occurs in a reading of Xenophon's dialogue, The Hero, which is a dialogue between a sort of philosopher, maybe a, more like a sophist hero, and a tyrant. And so the question is like, what does the sophist gain from talking to the tyrant? And what does the tyrant gain from talking to the sophist? Uh, so with that in mind, as somebody who cares about learning, as an end in and of itself, but also somebody who's engaged with public life. Where do you weigh in on that debate? So these are deep waters, and I, I, I haven't, you know, I probably should study this for a week before really answering, but I, I guess I'd slightly disagree with your framing of it in this way. I think Kojev's thought, I mean, as a Marxist Hegelian, was that philosophy could become wisdom. We could actually understand the true, the whole pattern of history. Each stage builds, I'm oversimplifying here, obviously, but each stage builds on the other. And we actually have something close to wisdom, or not something close to, but something that you legitimately can call wisdom. And therefore, once that's the case, philosophy and politics, philosophy and social life can come closer together. Uh, it's sort of the enlightenment dream carried to another level, perhaps, where philosophy can really inform 
political and social life in a in, in a very direct way, uh, not in an indirect way. So Strauss did not believe. Seems very one of the. It's hard to know with Strauss exactly what he thinks. You know, he he's always wants to remind you that philosophy is the love of wisdom and the search for wisdom, not not uh, conclusions. The questions are more important than the conclusions. But he seems to have been pretty convinced that we did not have a, available to us. Uh, wisdom, qua wisdom, that we could have a deeper understanding of the perpetual problems of the of the fundamental questions and so forth. And he had a very deep understanding of those. And, and when you read him, you do see what it means to have a, a serious understanding of a problem, at least you glimpse it compared to a, a shallow one. So you're right to draw the contrast, but I don't think Strauss is quite as pessimistic, quite as much, you know, cultivate your own garden as you say, I mean, the fact is the philosophers Strauss admired thought philosophy, political philosophy, to use a term that Strauss may well have invented almost, but that is his, you know, his becomes the term under which uh, he marches, so to speak. Uh, the political philosophy uh, does make, it can make a difference. So Plato, Aristotle, they, they were muted, they were modest, they were moderate in their expectations of what could be done. But clearly, Aristotle thought that understanding more about human nature and politics might mean that you could ameliorate some of the problems of politics and, you know, uh, tilt against, let's say, uh, some of the tendencies of one's time to create a better form of a mixed regime. And of course, Plato, very complicated to know what to understand from the Republic, but there is some sense there that even though the philosopher doesn't want to go back to the cave, he does go back and, and can uh, at least uh, devise better myths for the, for, for the citizens. So I think that's much more Strauss's attitude. And I think especially once he came to the US, he was very concerned with how uh, radical and irresponsible and philosophizing and the popularizing of that philosophizing in particular could have very damaging political uh, effects on the one hand, and how a healthy, if modest philosophy or philosophizing um, could have salutary political effects, not directly. Strauss didn't say, I've read this in Machiavelli or Spinoza, and therefore this should be our public policy uh, about this topic. Why? But that an understanding of, of a deeper understanding of the kind of regime we live in, of the kind of possibilities there are, of, of the weaknesses of our regimes, you know, w would allow a student, his students and his student students to spend some time uh, trying to... Uh, affect politics, but not in the Kojevian way, perhaps, and not claiming, not, not with a claim of wisdom, but with a claim of some understanding of the circumstances we face, the situation we face, a little more perspective and a little more depth uh, about the challenges of modern liberal democracy. I appreciate that sort of more moderate or optimistic spin, that it's not a binary between wisdom on the one hand and sort of nihilism on the other, but maybe we can hope for something something like understanding that isn't quite wisdom, but isn't quite uh, <laughs> just naivete. So with that in mind, is that the job of, let's say, a journalist or a writer who's engaging with the issues of the time to, to offer understanding? Or how do you think about the archetype of the public intellectual as relates to this sort of Strauss-Kajev debate? It's an interesting question. Uh, yeah, I mean, Strauss had a kind of a low opinion of the term intellectual, so th those are not philosophers necessarily. And a lot of intellectuals are sort of you know, pick up some fashionable idea and write it harder than it deserves to be written and, and end up in polemics with other intellectuals. It's not clear that those people ultimately uh, enlighten their fellow citizens or elevate the debate. Sometimes they could almost make it worse by becoming more ideological 
more hard and fast, more confident in their pronouncements, you know. And, and so I think that's something that's something Strauss is very aware of. I mean, throughout Straussians, I think are aware of the the dangers of the intellectual efforts to always turn politics into a battle of ideas. It sounds great. Who's against ideas? We're all for ideas, right? So ideas have consequences. That's good, supposedly. But actually, ideas can also be dangerous. And often one muddles, one works things out in ways that are a little bit unclear in terms of the actual ideas, or there are compromises among ideas, maybe that's a better way to say it. And the kind of desire for clarity at all costs and resolving every issue at all costs may not be healthy. So I think Strauss's version of this teaches moderation very much uh, in the forefront. Now, having said that, I think you then face the fact you know, that there's a huge range of practical challenges and there are times when one wants to be, I think, restrained and moderate in, in politics and say, this is a pretty good situation and maybe we can prove it a little bit here and I see this problem coming down the road. And there are times when one has to stand and fight Ukraine or whatever, and it's not a time for moderation exactly. It's a time for courage and for a resolution. And at that point, I think the, uh, I would say the appropriate role for any of us is to do our best to help uh, understand it and frame it and explain why some things are worth fighting for. But those things have to be worked out in a sense in a, in a case-by-case basis. Sure. Well, that, that reminds me of the sort of Aristotelian idea of phrenesis, of practical wisdom. Uh, which it sounds really good in the abstract, you know, use good judgment, right? And then the rub is, how do I cultivate good judgment? How do I know when my judgment is good? Who do I learn this phrenesis from? You know, is that something that's a methodology that can be scaled? Or is it just like, uh, you know, you get luck of the draw? So I, right at the national level, I think this, and at the global level, this becomes a huge problem. As phrenesis, you want it to be loose enough that it honors the specificity of the person making the judgment, but hopefully there's some guardrail. Otherwise, it, it seems to lead back to relativism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, there is the, I mean, Aristotle has that funny character, uh, I love Aristotle, but you know, of and courage is the mean between I don't know, foolhardiness and whatever, and you know, timidity or something. But I mean, everything is—it's all general enough or abstract enough that it's kind of hard to figure out. Well, how do you, how do you know what it actually is in any case? Well, one thing one has to say is it's not that easy always to know what it is in any one case. These really are, as we say in the modern world, um, fact-dependent judgments in some cases, and it's not a matter of, gee, I'm really smart. I've figured out, you know, what uh, what we should be doing here. Maybe you just don't know some key facts about what's happened or some key elements of the economic or political system or you know public policies that are important. So I, I, I take the kind of Aristotelian point of view, if you want to call it that, which I think is a good one, to push you in the direction of pretty fact-based, pretty empirical, really, pretty much looking at results, being influenced by results. Some things may work in theory, but not in practice. You know, if they don't they continue not to work in practice. Maybe there's a reason for that. We should just, just accept that. Now, having said that, I kind of take your point too about guardrails. I don't think one just wants to be floating around in a world of, well, this thing works, that thing doesn't work, and so now let's switch and do that. We do believe, presumably, in certain fu- more fundamental aspects of uh, the right way to organize our political and social and civic life. Liberal democracy, tolerance, you know, respect for uh, life of the mind, I mean, a whole bunch of things. Uh, and therefore, um, those are a little less a matter of, you know, let's, let's not be sure about whether that's a good thing, and more, let's not be totally sure about how we achieve that good thing. Um, so that's a little different. Some people, let's call them activist types, you know, maybe if one were counseling them, one, one would urge a little bit more restraint. 
and others who are already sort of in natural temperament restrained, I consider myself more in that camp. Sort of, I, I brood. I think I, I never. I gather information. I'm, I'm always unsure. You know, if if I have enough information or on which to act or or, or to uh, to support or or reject the so-called the current thing. <laughs> um, right. Someone like me, maybe you want to urge them to act and to be a little bit less cautious. You know, lest lest we end up like Hamlet sort of on the sidelines, wondering whether to uh, avenge it in injustice or, or not. So, but, um, so I, I take the, the Aristotelian point that maybe the wisdom, the counsel you would offer people depends upon their temperament. But that being yeah, said- Yeah, and we want to have people with different temperaments in, in life and in politics, right? You want some people who are the kind of judicious types. Uh, I found this just in practice when I was in government and in other institutions. You want to have some people around you who are saying, oh, what about this? What about that problem? Maybe we just leave things alone for now. And someone else who says, no, this is a bad situation. Doing nothing will make it worse. And we've got to act. So you have to take advantage in a certain way of, of the different temperaments that are there. Mm. So there's this ideal that I get from, from Strauss and from ancient philosophy. Uh, it's a fun word, zetetic, right? Uh, the, the philosopher should be zetetic, but not nihilistic. Zetetic, something like he's a seeker, she's a seeker. They don't have wisdom. Rather, they love wisdom. They're on the path. I think Strauss has a line somewhere like, um, the, the moment the philosopher has wisdom rather than loves wisdom, he's no longer a philosopher, he's a sectarian. <laughs> By contrast, Hegel sort of said, you know, up until me, <laughs> everybody loved wisdom. And now that you've read the phenomenology of spirit, you don't have to love it anymore. Like, here it is. <laughs> right? So there's two different views of what the goal is. One is to be on the path and the other is to have some answer. Now, as a zetetically inclined person, I guess the question is like, how does one cultivate moderation also about that, lest one make an idol of philosophy, lest one become just a theorist, but not a person who's sort of trying to apply these more eternal lessons or these eternal texts to the the Akron. I don't know, I think of you as someone for my listeners out there, you know, you you, you range in, in your pol political views, but whatever your part your partisan politics are, I think you can admire uh, Bill as a, both a thinker and a person who takes a stand. So I'd love your just your personal thoughts on this this equilibrium between the being being a thinker, being a zetetic, and also a person who's willing to say, you know, this is how it is, and also to change your mind potentially in public. So, I mean, I think I'm temperamentally a little more of a fighter than a, uh, a you know, ponderer or zetetic type. So for me, I think the study of political philosophy to the degree I studied it was very helpful in maybe tempering that a little. I'm not sure, maybe not enough. Some people would say at different times. I do think it does remind you though that uh, when you study serious thinkers, but also serious past historical debates and episodes, written about in an intelligent way, um, that all wisdom was not on one side, you know, and, and therefore that that's a very good reminder, not that you should always split the difference or that sometimes most wisdom isn't on one side, sometimes it is after all. But I, I think one of the most striking things today is the incredible polarization and partisanship, I leave aside the politics of it, but just intellectually too, as if, as if there's nothing to be said for any other 
you know, point of view uh, or an opposing point of view or some moderation of your point of view, that's really pernicious and foolish, honestly. It's just not the way the world is. It leads to just uh, competing ideologies, you know, clashing by night and um, pretty dangerous because it leads to greater bitterness, greater, greater refusal to compromise. And so forth. my father, who, you know, was considered sort of one of the founders of neoconservatism and defended democratic capitalism at a time when socialism was much stronger in the 70s, uh, titled his book in the late 70s, Two Cheers for Capitalism, uh, making the point that uh, he's he was defending it. But the intelligent defense had to be two cheers, not three. It had to understand that there, there are some deficiencies, there are some problems with capitalism, there's some things it can't provide. And an intelligent uh, thinker, a legislator, public intellectual has to think about, well, how do we then make up for some of the problems and deficiencies? And maybe part of it is having a welfare state and part of it is having a communal associations. So part of it is having a, a great respect for religious belief, which capitalism otherwise perhaps uh, tends to chop away at and so forth. So I think it's very useful to have that kind of check on certainty and on ideology. Ideology is a word Strauss and Straussians tend to, not to like. And I think they're very much right not to, you know. Uh, my father used to call neoconservatism a persuasion. He really also didn't want to call it an ideology. Because he, of course, it's a group of beliefs that sort of mostly hang together and that go together. And there's no reason not to talk about it that way. Uh, there's a reason they tend to hang together. But very important to try to govern oneself, I think, by these kinds of uh, persuasions or... Uh, inclinations or um, judgments, if you want to call it that, and not by ideology. The idea of giving something two cheers rather than three, that to me feels Jewish in a way, not exclusively Jewish, but um, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a text that, that it resonates with. So Hillel and Shammai were sort of opposing camps. Uh, they disagreed pretty much on everything. These are uh, houses of rabbinic interpretation around the time of the uh, second century, maybe even earlier. And Hillel won all of the debates all but six times. And um, in one of the Talmudic passages, sort of describing the anthropology of Hillel versus Shammai, Shammai tended to be stricter, Hillel more lenient. But uh, <laughs> uh, Hillel is, is praised for putting the words of Beit Shammai first, which is interpreted to mean something like a kind of intellectual humility, where Hillel is saying, you know what, uh, let, me, let me get the argument of the opposition right, and then present my views, but let me empathize with, with where Shammai is coming from, and then, I'll t and then I'll tell you where I'm coming from. And the idea that Hillel won because of that, I think that, you know, you could do a lot with that, right? Uh, one interpretation is that it was simply tactical. Like, if you want, <laughs> if you want, if you want to get goodwill, uh, start start by simply recognizing that there's merits on the other side. Uh, but I guess there's a, a less instrumental reading of it, which is just the kind of per you want the kind of person who takes that virtue to be the one who rules. You don't want the person who's only able to see it from their point of view. So. Uh, you know, it says the text says these and these are the words of the living God. They they were both right. They both had wisdom. God endorsed either methodology, but the law follows Hillel for this sort of human reason of putting the opposition first. So my question is, I mean, I generally just love your thoughts on that text, uh, but the the question is, is that really true? That text that seems so beautiful. I'm very inspired by it. But in today's climate 
um, it often seems like the people who win are those who give three cheers and who deny any legitimacy to the opposite side. Uh, maybe this is a problem of democracy, maybe it's a problem of populism, maybe it's a problem of social media. To criticize this line of thinking for a second, it seems like maybe Hillel and Shammai could afford to be a little bit more good sports with one another because they were elites. They didn't really have to be accountable to the masses. But once you open up <laughs> uh, politics to public opinion, now you're going to be ruled by rhetoric. And what rules in rhetoric is conspiracy theories uh, and demonizing the opposition, not sort of saying, you know, my, my friend over here, like the way, you know, Cory Booker talks about, you know, my friend Ted Cruz. <laughs> people, do people, I, I like that, but I'm, I don't know if that actually wins. So what are your general thoughts on that? So, I mean, this is a perpetual problem, which I think maybe has been exacerbated in the last 30, 40 years because of populism and social media and polarization and so forth in America and, and elsewhere around the world. Look, I, I've always been, this is a, an obvious point, obviously, many people have made it. That it is amazing that the Jewish religion, the Talmud, the most important text uh, of rabbinic Judaism, is a dialogue between various people. In fact, but mostly Hillel and Shammai, not mostly, but a lot of it's Hillel and Shammai, but a whole ton of other rabbis show up, you know, and with various disputations. Uh, most of which, though, I guess not all of which are even resolved exactly. Some of which are just left as, well, there are good arguments on both sides. The Haggadah, the single most read book by Jews in the, in the world, I guess, right? That you think, but less observant Jews, at least, uh, say, who are at the synagogue every, every uh, Shabbat or, or reading daily prayers. Uh, they went out of their way in a way that's actually kind of amazing because it doesn't help the narrative flow, I wouldn't say, of the Haggadah. It doesn't make it really captivating for young people to emphasize that what do they do to celebrate this exodus they've been ordered to commemorate and celebrate? Well, they report on the rabbis debating fairly pedantically, you know, the meaning of certain phrases. That's extremely interesting, I think, that, they, that the uh, compilers of the Haggadah chose to make that a pretty prominent part of Haggadah. They could have just told the story of Exodus, right? They could, there's a lot of excitement, exciting stuff happening there. They could have just stitched together the key, the key uh, verses really from, from Exodus itself and, and uh, had a nice story of what happened, you know, more like poor or something like that. But they really chose not to. So I think in both those cases, uh, the Jewish religion, maybe more than others, I mean, this is complicated. Christianity would say, well, Thomas Aquinas has a lot of this too, of course. Uh, disputed questions. Um, but Judaism, maybe more than most, has kind of a dialectic where there's a certain kind of warning against thinking you have everything, uh, you understand everything, whether you're right. Now, it's funny because that's combined with a fairly strict, you know, uh, account some, some, in some ways of the law and of the need to observe it, and you don't get to challenge things that have been around forever and so forth, and just change things if you're orthodox. I mean, so it's a complicated relationship of those two things, I guess. And the rabbis, of course, have, have discussed that a lot too and thought a lot about that. Um, but I think there is something about that's kind of anti somewhat anti-ideological, anti-fundamentalist might be another way of putting it, but the way the Jewish religion developed at least, that makes it somewhat open, open to this kind of discussion. Now, maybe it got less open to it over the centuries, and by the 18th century, it was kind of just, it was more like a bunch of rules and people you know, memorized parts of the Talmud, didn't really think about the discussions and so forth, and we have various rebellions against that. So I don't know if this is quite 
an answer to what you what you asked. Um, but I, I think it's a very good, interesting. I've always, I've often thought about it. I don't know that much about it, but such an interesting uh, question about how how to how to live a, a life that, in the case of Judaism, is very dedicated to certain principles and habits and uh, practices. It's not as if it's just, hey, do whatever you want. You know, one week you do this, the next week you you know you know you do something else. That's not the spirit at all. But it's still underneath the kind of uh, the law, and maybe these two go together in a way. Maybe that's the lesson, you know, you need to have a law on the one hand, halacha, but you also have to have a sort of spirit of inquiry. At the best, you could also have a spirit of inquiry uh, at the other. And, 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 that that's, and that is, I think, very, uh, I think it will just, I don't know that much, but the other religions, I won't compare it. I'll just say as, as a Jew, I think it's a, one of the really impressive and admirable aspects of Judaism. And it's why it can be so often revived, I would say, incidentally, by new thinkers and new new interpreters. You said that it was elite, and there's, of course, a lot of truth to that, um, in these little schools or, you know, discussion groups in B'day Barak or something. But it did end up shaping the whole people. So it wasn't entirely elite, you know? I mean, it, it, and I think the spirit of it permeated down to the people. And again, so a lot of it is just captured in, in jokes and so forth, you know, of, uh, you know, two Jews on an island, and they set up three temples, you know, three synagogues or whatever the jokes are. But you know, that's sort of ridiculous, and, and it's been very damaging politically, one could argue, to Jews in their history. But it does show something sort of uh, an unusual combination of a kind of questioning, but with a real commitment to certain, of course, fundamentals. So, right. I, I take your point about sort of elitism, that the fact that Judaism works, <laughs> that we're still here, indicates that it's not merely elite that there is some translatability between the ideals of Hillel and Shammai's discourse and sort of the everyday life. I mean, I would say that, you know, of course, this was diaspora Judaism. I mean, everything was, was for 2,000 years. And it's a funny, you know, that's a misfortune not to have had the state of a nation, uh, to have been in exile. But in some ways, it probably made that, don't you think, more possible. That's, it does seem to be when you get back into politics, then it's easier to have these disputations when what's at stake is ultimately how people are going to observe a certain holiday at a certain time or not, or whatever. Uh, it matters a lot to people. I don't mean to minimize it, but you don't have the weight of the state quite behind it. You don't have war or peace quite behind it. I don't mean to minimize the importance of these of these questions, but I do think maybe uh, the, when you bring back, in a weird way, the diaspora made it easier for Judaism to be a more philosophic religion. Right. We don't go to the book of Samuel or the book of Kings uh, for models of pluralism, right? The sons of King David don't treat each other with respect. They, they try to kill one another uh, in order to you know, claim the legitimacy of, of the throne. I hope this won't sound too heretical to, to some listeners, but like, the book of Kings reads more like Game of Thrones than it does like a philosophical dialogue. Actually, thinking of, of Kings and the Bible for a second, so one thing that strikes me. If you open up Pirkei Avot, which the sayings of the fathers, a cla classic Jewish rabbinic text, it's a, a story of genealogy. of uh, Basically, how did we go from the world of the Bible to the world of the rabbis? And it starts with um, Moses received Torah at Sinai. You know, he handed it down. Or he transmitted it to Joshua. 
Joshua to the Zikanim, the the elders, <laughs> the elders uh, to the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the prophets to the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, the men of the Great Assembly, which I guess is a, a category that combines the sort of tail end of the Bible with the uh, the rise of the rabbis in their mind. But notable uh, in that list is the omission of kings. Kings are not mentioned. Uh, they're cut out of the genealogy. And uh, so it, it makes the positioning of the prophets all the more striking, right? It's sort of saying, well, what is Torah? It's a, it's a moral authority that goes from Moses through prophets to us. It's not, you know, the ability to get political power. That's instrumentally good, but there's, it's morally indifferent. Now, I suppose a counter to that would be, well, King David wasn't he wasn't uh, excluded from the list. He, you just have to see that he was a uh, a zakain or a uh, <laughs> uh, he he was one of the elders. So there, you know, you can always retrofit some of these characters. But if you look at uh, Samuel and Kings, a lot of it is about the fight, the schism between the the temperament of a king, which is to rule and often to be corrupt, and the temperament of a prophet, which is to have the word of God, but not really be so good at administration, <laughs> community <laughs> building. That goes back a little bit to the Strauss-Kajev thing. It's a bit binary. Um, I think the, right, the hope is for a wise king or a wise rulership. Uh, but often what we get is this kind of schizophrenia. The, pro the prophets hate power and the, uh, the kings exile or persecute the prophets. So what, what do you make of that sort of archetypal struggle? Can we heal the divide between king and, and prophet? Well, this is a big question. Not f I guess my answer would be actually not fully. Isn't that one thing the Bible teaches by having these two different categories in a certain sense and not really finding many people who completely or fully can embody both? I mean, if there may be these two different human types, let's just say, both are necessary for a, a religion that's functioning in a society. The king is not so much if you're... In exile, you still need political leadership, of course. That was very important to Jewish communities. And this bracketed the whole issue of Zionism and what happens later. But you now the rabbis had a slight interest in elevating, you might say, the wise men and the uh, prophetic types over the kings. They wrote, you know, this is their account. So they, they, they don't, you know, this, the early Zionists were much more interested in some of the kings, right? And in some of the, uh, and in, the Book of Esther and so forth, you know, and, and, and Hanukkah and the kind of more martial uh, political stories from the from our past. It's also the case that the rabbit it has a lot of power, and we could argue about whether how that, you know that some some historical accents that some of the powers they have. Still, it's a free country, you know. The rabbit it can't doesn't get to break into your house at. Uh, 2 a.m. and to see what you're, you know, if you're keeping kosher or violating other uh, or, or observing Shabbat, even though they can insist that certain neighborhoods be sort of Shomer Shabbat and stuff. So, that, you know, it's an interesting attempt to balance, I think, these two different imperatives. There's always been a push and pull between, let's say, a liberal sensibility that's about open-mindedness and open inquiry and also like your, your own right to do what it is that you want in, the, in your privacy. or <laughs> um, And then this sort of conservative, as I would understand it, you, we could use a different term, but some concern for like, let's say, call it the common good or uh, flourishing, something a little bit thicker where you want the state or society to check 
this uh, individualism, you know, lest the individual sabotage itself or or undermine the common good. And and I think that that conservative description, actually, you you find it on today's left and on today's right. So it, it's not like liberal versus conservative is exactly the same as left versus right. Uh, maybe <laughs> left and right disagree a little bit about what the common good is. You know, the right the right maybe focusing on let's say issues of gender and sexuality. The left focusing on uh, collectivism, union, unions, things like that. But that debate happens within liberalism. And so my question is like, where, how you think about that tension, let's say between, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I don't wanna know what you're doing in your home, but at the same time, maybe not a total libertarianism, but at some point, what you do in your home translates into issues of environment and Cognitivity, and so it's kind of, it's somewhat arbitrary to draw the line between privacy of your own home versus the public. So I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, and also if your views on that have changed over time, kind of what, in what direction, and what have been the things that have moved you in in one or the other direction. No, I think that's well said, and I think there are there are obviously the tensions, and you can't just uh, draw. Libertarians would like to draw bright lines, but of course, bringing up kids, there are a million areas where there's overlap of the common and the public on the one hand, and the, you know, so to speak, the private uh, on the other. It's not, uh, it has to be some accommodations worked out, not just bright lines drawn. I guess I've I had for most of my life the fairly conventional, moderately conservative view that in a modern, atomized, liberal, commercial, capitalist, scientific society, there's an awful lot of push towards individualism, let's just call it. And that's fine, and that's that's the world we live in, and it's probably better than other worlds we could live in, almost certainly better. But uh, the, the, the task was to think about how to strengthen countervailing institutions to some degree. And many, many thinkers have uh, written about this and worked on this. And, and so it probably may be friendlier to, let's call it, the, uh, the more communal common good uh, efforts, the checks on uh, liberal individualism than than worried about liberal individualism per se, which seemed to be doing just fine, you know, and uh, was going you know, was, was was destroying one sort of old fashioned barrier after another. Didn't need a lot of help from from people like me. I have changed my mind on that in the last five, ten, fifteen years. I mean, I mean, I've changed my emphasis. Maybe is a way of saying it. I mean, a lot of it is the rise of authoritarianism and a sense of of liberalism qua liberalism needs to be defended a little more. Uh, firmly, and and it can't just be well. This is a, this part's a problem, and there's a kind of atomism, and there's a kind of lack of meaning, and there's this and this and this. And but you know, but I guess we'll have to put up with liberal democracy. No, there's much more that's impressive and and worthwhile about liberal democracy and liberalism uh, than individualism than one captures in those statements. And uh, obviously, it, it still requires all kinds of other institutions to flourish for, for people to flourish. But you want a society with a kind of individual drive and uh, differences of opinion and people thinking they can make their own lives that are different from what happened before. And you see that so much in America, I think. And you see, I think, when, it, when people turn away from it, both on the left, but especially on the right, you see how dangerous the alternatives are, too. It's not as if people turn into kind of a nice sort of uh, milder form of liberalism. You could, you could end up being a sort of Scandinavian welfare state, I guess, and that was thought for a while to be the kind of happy middle ground. I always preferred the more robust American individualism in that respect, in that case. But 
But it turns out when you turn away from a kind of commitment to liberal principles, you get illiberalism, and that's bad, and that is dangerous. And I guess people like me who grew up during the Cold War, but then saw the victory in the Cold War, thought, well, that probably doesn't really, you know, I think we've, uh, we don't have to face these threats quite as directly. There are obviously a bunch of bad regimes around. It's China, I don't, we, we were naive, I don't think, but uh, I feel more strongly than I have just about the need to make the case for, for liberalism and be less apologetic about doing so, I guess is the way I would put it. Mm. So I read a book um, by Patrick Deneen, who I guess identifies as a post-liberal <laughs> on the right, uh, called Why Liberalism Failed. I think Obama actually read the book and thought somewhat highly of it. And uh, I take it you don't think liberalism failed. I mean, he doesn't really think it failed either. It was, of course, he's complaining about its success and its dominance over everything. He thinks it failed and answering people's deepest wishes and creating a society in which people were healthy, were happy and contented and uh, sort of living satisfying communal lives. A, look, this is to some degree an empirical question. I mean, and I just don't think the evidence is there for that. You can just be nostalgic about the past all you want, but in the real world of the US and, and the 20, 2022, there's a, a lot of impressive social organizations and communal activities and uh, human activities which I think are someone like the name just sort of ignores and it ignores the huge cost of trying to go in an illiberal direction. So you can call yourself post-liberal, that's very nice, but then you're not really illiberal, you're just, who knows what you are, right? You get to be, you get to basically live in a liberal society, still take for granted all the good aspects of liberalism, uh, but then, you know, make, make a lot of hay about the fact that, oh, it's not perfect, you know, as if anything is. So I find that I, I find the whole argument a little disingenuous, honestly, and um, uh, in a way, the ones who are more radical than Deneen, uh, probably worse people, but who just want to make the case for illiberalism or being, you know, if that's what they want, they should make that case. But no, if Deneen just wants to ultimately say we're going to have liberal capitalism, but you know, let's be have a healthy, have a well, more robust welfare state, let's be very attentive to claims of religious freedom. Etc. That's that's fine, but that's a very conventional argument that he sort of wanted to make a more of a splash, more of a splash than that, I guess. So your argument is sort of similar to the idea that like um, lefties uh, who who looked up to Fidel Castro while living in in America and in, enjoying that that now we see some mirror version of that on the on the right with the way that people look at Hungary. Yeah, totally. They want to go to conferences in Hungary. Maybe they live there for a few months, but they're treated very well. They get salaries much above the average Hungarian. Uh, but then, A, most of these people have no idea what life is really like in Hungary. I don't either, frankly. But I mean, there are 9 million people in Hungary. The idea that that's going to be a very good model for the U.S., given the incredible difference in historical background and stuff, is, is, is already a little, a little ridiculous. I guess I would also go further, though, and, and this is, you know, where it sort of does, uh, where I think it's important. Uh, I also just think there's a kind of radical undervaluation of the merits of a kind of aggressive liberal individualism that seeks to break boundaries and seeks to invent things and, and is less nostalgic of the past, more willing to critical criticize the past than the last person who wants to be woke and wants to be, uh, you know, suddenly... Uh, throwing everything overboard. And so I'm sort of surprised, I guess, to hear myself saying this, but I will say this, that, you know, I personally have learned, I studied American history a fair amount. 
I personally have learned a lot about American history that I hadn't really focused on or really thought about until the last 10 years. In terms of, you know, for example, the Jim Crow era and how much that was a self-conscious attempt to restore white supremacy after the Civil War, and the way in which that was done, and then the way in the 50s in which these statues, which when I was growing up, I thought, well, that's kind of cute that they have statues to, you know, Civil War generals, who cares, you know, but that they were put up in 1954 or 1962 as symbols of defiance to equality to civil rights, you know, uh, and, and that sort of thing, uh, just a tiny example, but that gets true in a lot of different areas as well. Uh, I, I've become a little more grateful to the left-wing historians for discovering, um, for un unearthing certain parts of the past. And for me, it's a good reminder of how dangerous nostalgia is as a guide to to life and to politics, that I think, and it's that's a danger conservatives, and I put myself in this category, uh, have fallen into too often. You know, you really look what's happening. Everything's being, you know, uh, leveled by this modern, by modernity, by the individualism, by atomism. Once we all lived in these happy communities, and now it's all just crushed. And you know, well, let's go back and look at what those communities really were like. There were some good things about them but there were also some really terrible things about them. And we need to take the good and the bad. Maybe you can have the good aspects of both, but you need to be honest in a kind of historical and almost empirical way, I would say, about liberal democracy and its alternatives. It's not, this is where in a funny way, I, I, you, I'm like you and some extent of political philosophy a bit and stuff, but this is where the political philosophy can be a bit misleading. We are talking about actual regimes. We're not talking about cities and speech. We're not, you know, people are entitled to write books about cities and speech. Plato did, but, um, and it's useful to do so. But if you're making an argument that in the real world, we should go back more towards the America of 1955 than the America of 2022, Fine, and then let's look at the America of 1955. Well, oh, I don't, I don't mean that about race. Okay, well, let, but we need to do certain things to make sure, you know, we needed to have done certain things to make sure to break out of that race. Because, oh, I don't mean about women either. They should have the right to become physicians and lawyers if they wish to be. Okay, well, that required some actual actions and changes in attitudes. Maybe some of those changes have, their, have unfortunate side effects too. So uh, I just think being hard-headed uh, kind of to come back to where we started, perhaps, uh, about these kinds of trade-offs and choices is very important. In Judaism, I mean, which I don't know that much about, but as much as I should, or certainly as much as you do, but there too, I've become a little more sympathetic in a certain way to a kind of uh, liberal reformism and some of the modern scholarship in, in certain areas, feminism and, and so forth, which has uncovered interesting aspects of the Bible and of other, uh, of the tradition it had been somewhat covered over, I think, you know, and, and it doesn't, uh, makes the tradition more richer and more interesting, not less. Mm. Right. So one way of talking about sort of progressives versus conservatives is in terms of this issue of nostalgia. To what to one extent, you look at the past and you think, wow, you know, that was wonderful. To what extent do you look at it and think, wow, that was terrible. <laughs> and then similarly, right, the future, are you optimistic about the future? Do you have a story of the future as, as a story of let's let's improve versus a story of the future of like let's return or maybe even something apocalyptic like we need a total rupture here to break us out. So what you said temperamentally sounds something like a progressive view, you know, in terms of like let's talk about the, the French Revolution, the left sat, sat on one side and, and the right on the other. 
and uh, those who favored the revolution sat on the left, those, those who were worried about its consequences on the right. It's to me, it, um, a question for you specifically would be, is there a conservative argument that without nostalgia? Well, no, I think nostalgia comes along with conservatism just as a kind of excessive hopefulness for the future comes along with progressivism. I would sharply distinguish a kind of optimism, a kind of belief that you can make things better, which is a more standard liberalism, from uh, utopianism, from a sense, which is, I think, very dangerous, the sense that we can you know, transform human nature and human history if we do A, B, or C, or from a kind of progressivism that also becomes illiberal because it's we know that this is how things have to work have to be set up and so we're going to you know break the eggs to make the omelet and we're going to uh not worry about the short-term consequences so i'm very much against that form of progressivism too which is why i've become fonder over the last few years of just the old-fashioned term liberalism it's different from uh, being a reactionary or whatever it's different from being a progressive it's different from nostalgia on the one hand it's different from utopianism uh, on the on the other, no. I, look, I think conservatism. Uh, people are going to have conservative or liberal or liberal temperaments. Let's say some people are going to be more uh, nostalgic. Others are going to be always looking for the next thing. That's just some of that's just human nature. Uh, you, you want some of both, obviously, in a decent society. But I I have it a little struck that the let's put it this way the politicization of nostalgia I think is is dangerous, and and that it's one thing to sort of have actual nostalgia for that this was something that unfortunately we seem to have lost or that has gone away or that's at risk of going away. Maybe we should pay more attention to how we can keep that going. It's another thing to invent uh, a, a vision of the past that people don't even remember at this point and, and you know, invent it, you know, write it up in a way that's not actually authentic to what happened uh, and then endorse radical, in effect, uh, an illiberal means to try to restore it, or as I say, not even restore it because it, it never quite existed, but to to uh, to uh, impose it. And I do think there's quite a lot of that going on these days. And look, I mean, this is a big thing in Judaism, right? Where you do get these, there's a kind of nostalgia for the old, which can be, turn into a kind of intolerance of any change and of anything new and a kind of almost deification of the old, and then a kind of closed-mindedness and frank that, that's probably not very healthy going forward, I, I would think. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's a much bigger topic to, which we should return to sometime when we next talk. Sounds good. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but you know, um, one of the core stories in Judaism is that how terrible it was that the temple was destroyed, right? And there's like many, many nostalgic sentiments that accompany that story. For instance, this, this idea of like, joy left the world when the temple is destroyed. And now whatever you think is joy is actually just a 60th of true joy, right? This is like tremendous somberness to that sentiment. Almost like you, you have to walk around in mourning. You can't, you can't move on. But in fact, like even observant Jews, for the most part, are not actually living in mourning for the temple. You know, maybe they, they, they pray three times a day and say, uh, we want the temple to be rebuilt. But moment to moment, I don't think people are actually nostalgic. And so that leads me to a kind of Straussian <laughs> conclusion, which is maybe some amount of lip service to nostalgia is actually necessary as a catharsis for moving on. So like Freud has a distinction between mourning and melancholy. The, the, mor the mourner processes the grief in order to move on. The melancholic just stays in the grief. 
And I think actually Judaism was kind of wise in giving us a process for mourning the loss of the temple. So it, it honors that part of us that wants to be nostalgic, but in, in an effort to actually push us beyond the nostalgia. I wonder if just in contemporary po political life, the options are too absolute, where you, you either have to reject nostalgia or you, or you wallow in nostalgia, and that maybe some room for letting people feel like things were good in some ways will actually then allow them to focus on the future, or even the nostalgia some people feel for the, the history that they, that they were taught as a school student and now feel, okay, um, you're telling me that I have to throw that all out, that that was wrong. Maybe uh, giving people some nostalgia for that would actually be a way of um, like a poison pill <laughs> or immunization, I don't know the right word, uh, for actually then moving towards the future. And just the last thought I had on this topic vis-a-vis uh, -vis Judaism. So there's a halachic, a legal distinction between um, violations of Sabbath, which are done intentionally, and violations of Sabbath that are done unintentionally. The, he the Hebrew is kind of instructive. So a devar she'eno mit kaved and, uh, is, a, is a thing that you do, an act that you do unintentionally, and a, a psik resha velo yamut is an is a, uh, intentional one. So the, the literal meaning of psik resha velo yamut is, can you chop off the head of a chicken and say, that it just happened to die? Like, no, you, you chopped off the head of the chicken so that it would die. <laughs> you can't just say that the, the consequences has nothing to do with the cause. Whereas the, um, the example of uh, a Devar Omid Kavain is a person, dra let's say, dragging a bench along a ditch and making uh, a little furrow. They weren't, tr they weren't trying to make the furrow, they were just trying to drag the, get the bench from point A to point B. So, this is probably a longer conversation, but I think about those paradigms when we're litigating, let's say, the question of like, is America good or bad? Is the founding, is the founding itself premised on, let's say, you know, white supremacy, which would be the psych ratio argument? Yeah, but I think I look, I was thinking about the founding as you spoke. I think that's a very good thing to close on. But A, I agree with you. What about nostalgia? And about you want to look back at things that you admire, including in our case, the founding, Lincoln, and so forth. But you also want, uh, to be honest, I mean, there's a little bit of maybe prettying up the past is okay. But actually, if the founding were really based on, explicitly based on white supremacy and designed to continue it forever, it would be, that would be, one would have to have a different judgment of the country and of its history. One would have to be more progressive, I guess the way I would put it, uh, in thinking about the country than, it, uh, than one should, has to be. Because the truth is, no, the truth is they hoped slavery would be in the course of ultimate extinction, as Lincoln said. Uh, the 1619 project is wrong in that respect. That doesn't mean that it's not an awfully big sin, as Lincoln also said, uh, and that there were all kinds of compromises made to it and that it didn't then rear its ugly head many times later. So I think one could have a pretty balanced view of these things, honestly, uh, without uh, going too far in one direction or another. I think a healthy patriotism is, is consistent with a pretty, with a healthy liberalism, I guess that would be, that would be the way I'd put it. Fantastic. So let's end with this note of uh, finding the uh, the realistic and empirical <laughs> view, not not shying away from the truth, using good judgment, and uh, being open-minded to one's uh, ideological opponents, being zetetic, but also uh, cultivating the courage to uh, raise one's voice. So thank you, Bill, for uh, in engaging in this meditation with me. Oh, thanks, Sahar. I really enjoyed it. 
Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.